0: Online and business, Voice America Business.
1: Welcome to the Money Answer Show with host Jordan Goodman. Whether you are starting out deep into your retirement or somewhere in between, the Money Answer Show has the know-how to help you. Now here's your host, Jordan Goodman.
2: Welcome to the Money Answer Show. This is Jordan Goodman, your host, and my guest this hour is Tom Gorman, uh, who is the author of a new ebook called The Complete Idiot's Guide to the Financial Crisis. Welcome to the show, Tom.
3: Thanks very much, Jordan.
2: Let's start a little bit with your background and how you got to where you are and why you uh, wrote this book in the first place.
3: Okay. Uh, I have a background in banking going back to the early 80s and then a background in management and a couple of Fortune 500 companies specifically done in Bradstreet Credit Services and then McGraw-Hill, actually a division of McGraw-Hill that was involved in economic forecasting called DRI McGraw-Hill that company is now known as global insight about fifteen years ago i also started writing business books actually full-time about fifteen years ago uh... wanting to be uh... An independent operator and be involved in the world of business ideas this book grew out of my interest in uh, the financial markets general finance and economics and uh... quite honestly i was approached to write the book having written the complete idiot's guide to economics uh... several years ago
2: And so why do you think people need a particular book about the financial crisis? We're going to get into it in more detail, but in general, what are some of the things that people don't understand about what's happened here?
3: Well, I think what's really needed is a sense of context. Uh, There are plenty of daily sources and Internet sources for information on this crisis, as well as uh, radio, television. But what seemed to be lacking is a ongoing storyline that really placed this in context, meaning what happened several months ago, where are we now, where might we go, and how does this fit in with recessions in the past as well.
2: And and, in general, how is this one different from past cyclical recessions we've had?
3: Well, it's, uh, it's a lot more severe, and I don't think it's just cyclical. Uh, Some of the recessions that we've had in the past, well, most of them, rather, uh, are related to what I would term the ordinary business cycle. Uh, For instance, after the tech stock meltdown in 1999-2000, we had a short eight-month recession, and then followed by the six-year expansion during the George W. Bush administration. Uh, We had a light recession in the early 90s, 1991-92, under george bush one uh... that we came out of in good shape obviously with the uh... robust growth of the nineties in the early eighties we had a rough recession after the inflation wealth stagflation, the stagnant growth coupled with inflation of the seventies uh, fed chairman paul volcker brought that recession on by raising interest rates to unprecedented highs to squeeze the inflation out of the economy. That was a rough recession, and this one is comparable to that one. But now we have a lot of factors having to do with, obviously, the housing market and the way uh, subprime mortgages have filtered out into the larger financial system to create uh, damage as well as risks that we haven't seen in the normal business cycle.
2: Okay, very good. Before we get into the details, just tell people how they can find out about this book and where they can get it. It, People may not be familiar with how to get an
3: e-book. Well, the easiest way to get this book is by going to www.idiotsguides.com. There you can get a PDF of the book, which is uh, readable on any Adobe reader, as well as a Microsoft reader version, and links to Amazon.com, where it's available as a Kindle book. It's also supporting all of the other major uh, ebook uh, readers, uh, Sony Reader, and uh, the other three or four major ones as well. It's not available now as a paper-and-glue book, and that's another difference between this book and others. This is an ongoing book, Jordan. In other words, I'm writing it in seven parts as the crisis unfolds. Part one was released in late March, March 23rd. Part two will be released in mid-May, and then every eight weeks after that, will be releasing another two part uh, another part of the book
2: what if the crisis ends by then they will be in real trouble right? <laughs> <laughs> I don't
3: see that happening and I don't think you do either Jordan <laughs> I'm kidding I'm kidding <laughs>
2: all right well let's start with chapter one and again I'm speaking with Tom Gorman whose new book is called The Complete Idiot's Guide to the Financial Crisis and you talk about what the crisis means to you uh, now and you have various uh, little things you're, you're saying starting off by saying get your bearings what, what do you mean by getting your bearings?
3: Well, I think this has been a very disorienting uh, process for a lot of people, especially if they haven't lived through a severe business cra- uh, business cycle before. I'd say the the most severe that I've lived through personally would be the 1970s and then the early 80s, which we just spoke about a, a moment ago. But getting your bearings means really understanding that, I guess as the phrase goes, this time it is different. This is not an ordinary business cycle. Uh, the... Uh, effects on employment unemployment uh on income the level of household debt that's out there now and the policy responses and the limitations on policy responses are a lot different than they have been in past recessions therefore you really have to look at your finances your household finances your debt situation and i'd say the most important thing if you haven't been hit hard by this don't be complacent Get your bearings whether you are in trouble now or whether you think you're not in trouble at all.
2: Now, you talk, a a Bill, about avoiding panic and despair. Do you see that a lot, and how does one avoid panic and despair if that's the direction you're headed?
3: Well, that's very difficult to do. And I think that one thing that's not being spoken about very often in this uh, crisis is uh, the emotional effect of this when you lose your job when you're feeling that you might lose your job there's a huge emotional dimension to this and there's a sense also that your uh, identity or self-esteem is actually under assault and that's true it is in a way but the way to deal with that is not by denial which uh, a number of people i know have tried and which has not worked it's really by getting your information together uh, having frank discussions both with family members and with uh, your boss, your customers, uh, your major customers, especially if you are in business for yourself, and finding out really where you are. And that very act itself, Jordan, helps people get a handle on their emotions and direct their emotional energy out toward the problem to be solved rather than where am I going, where's my self-esteem, will I wind up broke, ill, and abandoned someday?
2: You say that you should uh, uh, not imagine that you're immune. Is is that happening? Some people think that that this is not really going to affect them, and and how does that affect their behavior?
3: I think it affects their behavior mainly in terms of uh, inertia and and, and not moving. Uh, What they tend to do is, uh, I'll give you an example. Someone I know, in fact more than one person I know, honestly believed that he wouldn't be laid off even though people around him were being laid off. Now, he had no rational reason to believe that he wouldn't be laid off. However, it did ultimately happen. He waited for it to happen rather than coming up with a plan B, uh, at least, and uh, developing some options, which, again, I stress, would, in itself, aside from helping him with the uh, practical problems, also help him with the emotional issues involved.
2: You talk about uh, charting a course uh, and prioritizing your needs. Uh, how is that possible when things are kind of so uncertain out there
3: well no matter how uncertain they are various people have various needs in other words say you do have some investments well you're in better shape than if you don't maybe you can borrow against those investments i know a number of people actually who have borrowed against their 401ks if you have an insurance policy you might be able to uh, with cash value you might be able to borrow against that if you're in business for yourself You uh, have a set of priorities priorities that are really related to looking at where your income has been coming from and what the risks to those sources of income are. Um, The major priority, to cut right to your uh, question or to the answer to your question, is maintaining positive cash flow. Once you're in negative cash flow, it's very difficult to get out. Once your income falls below your outgo, you are facing a problem. Now, there are only two ways to deal with that. One is by maintaining or increasing your income or by reducing your expenses. And you might have to reduce your expenses drastically. You might even have to move. You might have to move from having two cars to one car, from having one car to no cars in order to cut those expenses. So you have to really look at the priorities in terms of is raising my income more important than cutting my expenses? Is it less important? Should I do both? And which is going to be easier and more effective to do?
2: You talk about going into a financial siege. Now, if everybody did that, and a lot of people seem to be doing that, doesn't that just exacerbate the economic downturn when people don't want to spend and businesses have to lay off? And we kind of get in this negative cycle if everybody goes into a financial siege.
3: Well that's certainly true. However, I don't think that any individual household can afford to uh borrow and spend, let's say, in order to uh try to single-handedly uh help the economy. Uh and that you, you your question actually cuts to the the larger problem and brings the larger problem into focus, which is that we as a society, I believe, will probably have to learn how to live with lower expectations and quite possibly a lower quality of life or rather lower standard of living let me put it that way going forward in the years to come in the next say three to five years to come maybe a little longer
2: so are you saying that that's true for most people or are there some people who are going to see opportunities and actually do quite well in this environment
3: no question some people will do well in this environment and some people are doing well in this environment uh... If you went into this in good shape, if you made adjustments to your portfolio beforehand, if you had your mortgage paid down, if you have a business that is either counter-cyclical or, I hesitate to say, recession-proof, but uh, one that can survive in recessionary times, you're definitely in better shape. If you have money to invest in real estate, obviously, you are in a, a good position at this point. If you're in healthcare, you're probably in good shape at this point. A uh, number of people I know have government jobs, and they haven't been hurt, and they are actually looking for opportunities as well.
2: What are some examples of countercyclical businesses that would actually benefit by the current environment?
3: Liquor stores, I think, would be the uh, most important one. I'm joking actually. Okay. Uh, countercyclical businesses, uh, I would say, are the ones uh, well, certainly bankruptcy judges, uh, forensic accountancy, accountants in general are doing fairly well. Uh, people in risk management, right now, insurance is doing well in the rather battered financial sector. Uh, businesses that are in fundamental services that people can't do without, obviously are still going to do well as well.
2: Okay, so, you say, so we've gone through all that, creating this financial siege. Then you're saying you have to take action and evaluate your progress. Do you do that in a written form, or how do you evaluate your progress?
3: It's incredibly important to do these, uh, these exercises, if you will, or go into these practices in writing with a calculator and not have it all swirl around in your head. It's an excellent idea to get advice. Find a trusted advisor if you do not have one, preferably one who knows accounting and finance, obviously. Uh, A financial planner in this situation can be invaluable for two reasons. First of all, they can give you objective advice. No matter how bad your situation is, they have seen worse, believe me. The other thing is, again, the act of simply getting advice, taking action, speaking with them will help you put your problems into perspective and of course third you will actually get perspectives advice uh planning tools that you will not have uh on your own indeed
2: okay we're going to take a break Uh, this is jordan goodman of the money answer show and my guest this hour is tom gorman uh, whose new ebook is called the complete idiot's guide to the financial crisis and we'll be back after this
0: all we talk about is money. Call us toll-free, 866-472-5790, and talk to the experts. We talk, talk money, money all the all time. time. Voice America Business. and listen to CIO Talk Radio with Sanjo Gall. Listen in every Wednesday at 9 a.m. Central, 7 a.m. Pacific, right here on Voice America Business. All we talk about is money. Call us toll-free, 866-472-5790, and talk to the experts. We talk Talk money money all the time. time. Voice America Business.
1: You've been listening to The Money Answer Show with Jordan Goodman. If you have a question for Jordan or his guest, please call us now at 866-472-5790. That's 866-472-5790. Now back to Jordan.
2: Welcome back to The Money Answer Show. This is Jordan Goodman, your host, and my guest this hour is Tom Gorman, who's the author of The Complete Idiot's Guide to the Financial Crisis. Welcome back to the show, Tom.
3: Thanks very much, Jordan.
2: You have a whole section on using debt wisely. Uh, What are some of the things people should do
3: and not do as far as debt in this environment? Well, debt is misunderstood, I think, very often. Uh, I think, in general, it's better to be debt-free than be in debt, obviously. However, what people often fail to do is match the term of the debt instrument to the term of the asset being financed. Uh, in other words, they will put their vacations, expensive restaurant meals, uh, those experience sort of expenditures on their credit cards. Now that's okay if you pay the credit card off at the end of the month. I mean, really pay it off, not say, I'm going to pay it off, and then don't. Obviously, a restaurant meal or a vacation isn't an asset in the true sense of the term. An asset is a car, an education, a home. Using debt to finance a car, an education, or a home, provided the term of the loan that you're taking matches the life of the car, well, your education you have forever, so if you have to pay off education loans for some years after graduation, that's not necessarily a bad thing at all. And uh, surely a mortgage, if you can be in your own home, see the appreciation, and appreciation will come back someday, surely, uh, then a mortgage is obviously a good use of debt as well. But it's important to understand how you're using debt and not think of it as a, well, free lunch.
2: Now, you have a whole section here on uh, loan modification and refinancing strategies. If somebody has their home, Uh, Underwater, meaning that they owe more than the house is worth, it's declined in value. Um, What are some strategies that people should should use to modify their loan so they can not lose their house?
3: Well, it's really important to talk to your uh, mortgage servicing firm or your uh, bank about this. Uh, first of all, it does no harm to talk about it at all. Understand, uh, uh, they, uh, people must understand too that loan modification is different than refinancing. A number of people who cannot refinance, which, with the way mortgage rates are going now, would probably be the preferable solution, uh, can still do loan modification. Loan modification is more for, as you point out, Jordan, uh, a, a distressed homeowner. It really has to do with uh, the loan modification features of, of the transaction. For instance, often you can reduce the interest rate at least temporarily, say for three to five years, maybe down to three percent or four percent, and then with a bump uh, up to five or six and a half percent down the road. You can also often increase the length of the loan. That's a modification feature as well. Say so if you've got a twenty. Year loan, maybe you can go to 30. If a 30 year loan, you can even sometimes go to 40 years. There's also a thing called principal forbearance, in which a lender basically says, We're going to reduce the amount of your principal by X dollars. That way, your monthly payments will be recalculated and be lower. And then you will pay us that uh, portion of the principal that we uh, were forbearant about, let's say, when you sell the house. Uh, another way is to, instead of loan forbearance, have a portion of the principal be structured as a balloon payment at the end that you will either refinance or pay when you sell the house. Uh, when you do go uh, looking at mo- loan modification, loan modification, it's important to be talking to someone who can actually make a decision. Uh, your listeners uh, should know that there are unscrupulous outfits out there that purport to lead you through the loan modification process, charge you twelve, fifteen hundred, two thousand dollars up front, and then promptly do nothing and disappear. In fact, some unscrupulous loan originators have actually repackaged themselves and rebranded themselves as loan modification experts, which is a cruel situation, but uh, there it is.
2: Now a lot of banks say that they are um not willing to modify a loan until you've already missed a payment or two, at which point your credit score has already gone down and you've kind of already hurt yourself. Are you hearing that changing, that banks are willing to modify your loan even before you've missed a payment?
3: They'll always be willing to listen to your story uh, if you're talking to the right person. And if you tell them that you are headed for distress, I think that you will get a hearing at least. Uh, there are features out there now in uh, uh, high end retail sales, uh, cars obviously being a, a good example, where the seller will actually build into the transaction uh, a guarantee or, let's say, a, a, a modification feature on your financing if you were to lose your job. So I don't think you now have to be in distress uh, and, and totally on the ropes. Uh, before you can get a hearing about a potential modification package,
2: how is the money? I think I remember that the Obama administration is putting $75 billion into helping loan modifications. How is that going to work, and how are the banks going to use that money to modify loans where in the past they might not have done so?
3: I'm not entirely sure that that has been launched yet, and uh, your listeners should go to uh www.fha that's uh, federal housing administration fha.com uh, or hud i'm sorry that was .gov correction right .gov or hud uh .gov to learn some details about that uh a number of loan modification uh, programs have been uh, abruited about But I am not certain that the most recent one has actually been fielded yet. They are being fielded through uh, government agencies uh, like the FDIC, like HUD, and like the uh, Federal Housing Administration, working with the banks uh, in concert to modify loans. You generally have to be, as you pointed out earlier, already underwater and in distress, having missed some payments in order to qualify for those programs. Okay,
2: and then you talk about refinancing. Now, rates are down to their lowest levels in 45 or 50 years. What are some things that you should do right, and what are some of the mistakes people make when refinancing?
3: Well, I think the biggest mistake would be to take on a ARM, an adjustable rate mortgage. I think that uh, most people have probably learned their lesson on that one, and, and I hope that they uh, would have. But rates could easily go up in the next two or three years. So that would be the first thing to avoid. Another thing to avoid is unnecessary fees. A number of fees actually can either be negotiated downward or just be done away with simply by asking or telling the uh, the loan originator, look, I don't want to pay a fee here. Uh, that might sound simplistic, but A, it doesn't hurt to ask, and B, a number of these uh, situations are or are, are competitive situations where the... Uh, loan, the, the loan refinancing, of the, rather the loan originator, wants to do business, especially if you are credit worthy, if you have a credit score uh, above uh, the 740, 750, I mean, the, there's no reason you should be paying a lot of, you know, facility fees, origination fees, and these other fees that uh, banks are fond of charging you for, for what service, it's often difficult to discern.
2: So that's what you should avoid. What are some of the things you should do? At what point does it make sense to refinance? How much does the new mortgage have to be lower than the old mortgage for, to make it uh, make sense in today's environment with the kind of closing costs that are out there?
3: Yeah, I haven't run those numbers myself, and and any individual who is contemplating one of these uh, transactions should run those numbers. But I think that if you can get your mortgage uh, down, your mortgage payment down by at least several hundred a uh, a month i think it's probably going to be worthwhile as long as you are staying in your house for another 2 years or so that's the calculus basically jordan how long are you going to be staying in your house because that's the time over which you're going to be amortizing your closing costs and any fees that you do have to pay but if uh, you do the numbers and the payout uh, or rather the payback period on those uh, those fees uh, comes to something like 10 months, 18 months, two years even, and you plan on being the house, in the house three or four years, it's probably worth doing because mortgage rates have dropped uh, substantially.
2: Is your view that uh, the mortgage market is going to continue to fall further as the economy gets weaker, or do you think that uh, people will face the dollar and, and interest rates are going to start rising here as it affects the refinancing decision?
3: Uh, I don't think it, it 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 affects the refinancing decision if you can lock in uh, a fixed rate that you find attractive and that saves you money off your monthly uh, uh, nut on, on on your housing bill. Uh, to answer your interest rate question, I feel that interest rates will head up certainly by the first quarter, second quarter of next year. I don't see how they cannot uh... given how much debt the u.s. government is 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 putting out there now
2: so but i'm just saying from a refinancing point of view some people say I, i'll wait until i get the absolute lowest rates and they've been right because rates oh, have continued to fall that. here
3: that's a difficult one jordan uh... you're asking uh... you're asking me to call the bottom of the interest rate curve here and uh... that would be a tough one and i i don't have my crystal ball uh, polished up that highly <laughs> uh... I think that waiting around too much longer would probably not be a good idea.
2: Uh-huh. Okay, very good. All right, on we go. The next area you talk about is investment management in the new world we're in today, uh, and you talk about finding uh, good investment advisors and investing in what you know. How are things different, and particularly in the post-Madoff era, about picking good financial advisors today than they were uh, in the good old days?
3: Well, I can't think of anything that would be more important than having a good financial advisor at any time. But now it's absolutely essential. Um, there's an issue, really, with someone like Madoff of, of, of fundamental integrity. And I, I believe, and my experience has been that most people do want to do a good job. Most people do care about their clients and customers, and most people want to deliver real service. In the past, though, I think that a number of people took advantage of, let's say, the low barriers to entry in the financial planning uh, sector. Uh, A lot of people who are essentially selling securities, selling insurance, selling financial products, sort of repackaged and repositioned themselves as financial planners. I believe that the best way to go is with a financial planner that you are paying for his services or her services and not someone who is essentially a a commissioned salesperson who is making his or her money by selling you financial products. So that objectivity that a true financial planner can give you is something that I think is more important now than it ever was before.
2: You also talk about the importance of dollar cost averaging. Why, Why does that make sense in this environment particularly?
3: Well, it makes sense in this environment, particularly because stocks are generally fairly low at this point, and you'll be getting started if you start dollar-cost averaging at a point where the market is at a low. I tend to think that this is a terrific strategy if, uh, and this might not apply to all of your listeners, but if you are not someone who enjoys or has skill at following his or her investments, if you are an unsophisticated investor, if you have a true long-term outlook and you have a set of funds or stocks that you really like, I can't think of a better way than dollar cost averaging to have a regular, systematic commitment to accumulating those stocks or those funds.
2: And what are some specific ways you would recommend dollar cost averaging?
3: I think, uh, the, well, the, the, the essence of it is to really decide which funds or stocks you really do like enough to, let's say, marry instead of just date, because the strategy is predicated upon uh, purchasing them uh, every quarter, every month even, with a fixed amount, putting a fixed amount of dollars into a uh, a specific stock or fund or several actually uh, specific stocks or funds and doing that over time so that the average that you're paying for the fund or the stock is lower than the highs and higher than the lows this is also of course a uh, long-term strategy that depends upon the market uh... number one increasing in value over time, and B, you're being able to sell the stock at a time when you've obviously paid more for it than uh, than the average that you have paid over time.
2: Very good. Okay, we're going to take a break. This is Jordan Goodman of The Money Answer Show, and my guest this hour is Tom Gorman, who uh, is the author of a new ebook called The Complete Idiot's Guide to the Financial Crisis. And we'll be back after this.
0: All we talk about is money. Call us toll-free, 866-472-5790 and talk to the experts. We talk, talk money, money all, all the time. The time. Voice of America Business.
1: both their products and services are invited to become members of the money answers network the public can sign up for membership in the money answers network at no charge in order to be apprised of the latest useful resources to learn more visit www.moneyanswers.com get ahead with money answers
2: what i want to be when i grow up by johnny
1: dad it's john i got the promotion we'll call him john
0: jr You'll speak over 500 million words in your lifetime, but none of them will be as important as the words you use to tell your six-year-old he has cancer. CureSearch.org connects you to the most comprehensive research and advice on childhood cancer and to other families who know exactly what you're going through. CureSearch.org. You're not as alone as you feel. Brought to you by CureSearch and the Ad Council. Sell, buy, buy, sell. All we talk about is money. Talk to an expert. Call now. Call now. Toll free 866 472 5790. 472 5790. Voice America, America Business. Business.
1: You've been listening to The Money Answers Show with Jordan Goodman. If you have a question for Jordan or his guest, please call us now at 866-472-5790. That's 866-472-5790. Now back to Jordan.
2: Welcome back to The Money Answer Show. This is Jordan Goodman, your host. My guest this hour is Tom Gorman, uh, who is the author of a new book called The Complete Idiot's Guide to the Financial Crisis, uh, published by Alpha Penguin. Welcome back to the show, Tom.
3: Thanks very much, Jordan.
2: You talk about three ways to profit from the housing crisis. Why don't you go through those three? Excuse me, Jordan? You talk about three ways to profit from the housing crisis. What are the three ways to profit from the housing crisis?
3: Well, they are buying foreclosures, investing in tax lien certificates, or using your IRA to invest in real estate.
2: All right, let's do those one at a time. On the foreclosure side, uh, there's an awful lot of foreclosures out there. How do you find a good one and avoid the bad ones?
3: Well the best way I think to find a foreclosure is by networking. Uh going down to the, the the courthouse working with a realtor or two that you can actually form a relationship with because the key thing here is that you do not want to be in a position where if you are not a professional of uh, a realtor or or real estate investor where you are Bidding for a foreclosure against a professional. A professional will generally prevail almost every time against an amateur. So if you are an amateur, it has to do with, you know, casing out the neighborhood, uh, finding out, uh, when the foreclosure occurs, uh, networking with, uh, with bankers and realtors and, uh, again, individuals at the courthouse to locate a property before it is on the block, so to speak.
2: Okay, and then uh, tax lien certificates. Uh, w- w- there must be an awful lot of them these days, with people falling behind on their taxes. H- how do you pick a, a good tax lien certificate versus a bad one? Uh,
3: I think the key thing here is to be looking in an area where, well, first of all, you you have a limited, uh, a, a wide but limited array of, of of states and locations that you can look at, because only 30 states. That's a good number still, but not every state does uh, allow. Uh, people to allow the state to sell the tax lien certificate to an individual. But the key thing, I think, is to be in an area where the property has intrinsic value, just in case you do have to uh, take over the property itself, where you can get a good return for the uh, level of risk involved.
2: Okay, and then the final one is using your IRA to invest in real estate. Is, you're talking about uh, positive cash flow rental real estate, and, and why does that make sense to do inside your IRA?
3: well a lot of people don't realize that you can use your ira to purchase real estate but you have to set up what's known as a self-directed ira this enables you to invest in just about anything that is a reasonable asset and that certainly includes real estate now there are strict rules regarding the properties being used solely for rental or investment purposes and that means you can't use them yourself. And you can't deduct the uh, expense from the uh, the interest expense from your uh, uh, I- income, uh, the related expenses from your income. So you have to be running it pretty much as a business, but you're running it as a business, so to speak, uh, within the uh, the shell, let's say, of your IRA.
2: And and you're, you're basically saying that in the long run you think real estate's going to come back, and so that appreciation can be growing tax-free inside an IRA, whereas it would be taxable outside of the IRA. That's right. And then the income you would get from rental income would be sheltered as well. So that's why you're saying, even though it may be illiquid, that it's still better to do it inside an IRA than outside an IRA.
3: That's right, the tax advantages. And because, and, and this depends, of course, upon the investors seeing the real estate investment as a preferable investment to a financial asset at this point.
2: Yeah. Okay. All right, let's get into it. Your second chapter talks about the four fatal factors and the key players that caused this crisis in the first place. So let's kind of understand why we got into where we are. The first one is low interest rates and easy money. Now, that's happened in 2003, 2004 when Greenspan lowered rates to 1%. But here we are at 0% now and we're doing it all over again. So how is creating even easier money and even lower interest rates going to help solve a problem that that was the cause for in the first place?
3: Well, I'm not at all convinced that it is going to solve the problem, Jordan. And and that brings us to a serious issue here, which is that the policy options that we normally have and that would normally be effective in uh, dealing with a recession really aren't uh, available to us in, in the way they normally would be. And by that, I mean this. During the the six-year expansion we had under george w bush we spent uh, uh, uh... most of it actually running up deficits and keeping interest rates relatively low that means that at the end of the recession if we start cutting interest rates even fairly low we're not going to be able to get much stimulus out of that similarly with the deficit spending that we're doing with the obama stimulus plan Uh, and efforts by the Fed, I might add, to uh, put loan guarantees and and, uh, loan facilities out there to assist the banks, Uh, people know, look, we're going to be uh, either printing money or really running up uh, far higher deficits, as far as the eye can see, as the phrase goes, without probably getting much bang for the buck. So
2: what's a better way to do it? Should they be stimulating things more or less?
3: I think uh, the truth of the matter is that because the policy options are are limited, there's not much that really can be done except what I would call palliative uh, uh, measures. And by that I mean this: the government can't sit and do nothing. Uh, it won't get people reelected, and, and and it would just appear appear callous. But in a sense, there's not that much the government can do to really goose this economy out of this recession. We're going to have to work off uh, a lot of the household debt that's out there now. For example, let's say we cut weights, which we have, to, well, the effective uh, rate is close to zero, as you say, right. uh, on the Fed funds rate. So people are not going to say, uh, well, give me some money and I'll go and spend it uh, if I have to pay it back again, when they're already under a fairly heavy uh, household debt load. <laughs> so, uh that, I think, is the fundamental problem with trying to goose this economy with uh, monetary policy, with loose-money policy.
2: Well, in fact, right now, uh, people are getting more money back in their paychecks. Part of the stimulus plan is to do that. And my understanding is most people are either going to save it or use it to pay off debt, but not you know, go on some kind of big spending spree that's going to spur the economy. So I guess this is the, what they always talk about, pushing on a string, right? You can't kind of... It's the bring the horse to water syndrome as well. H- how do you turn that around? and get the economy moving in a significant way if literally handing money to people they are not gonna spend it how do you change that psychology
3: well at the moment i don't think we can because what you're saying is exactly true and it is a pushing on a string situation the way this will uh, and and this i believe is why so many economists and why i myself believe actually uh... why this is going to take a while to turn around why we're going to be looking at Negative or flat or sluggish growth for uh, still a few quarters to come. What will ultimately turn things around uh, to, to at least positive growth, 1%, 1.5% growth, I believe, is when pent up demand is released. Pent up demand, uh, as you know, occurs when people who have been putting off major purchases uh, the washer, the dryer, the dishwasher, the automobile, just can't do it anymore. Uh, they can't or won't make another repair. Uh, they uh, can't or won't stop uh, doing whatever they were doing uh, when when they didn't have these appliances, so to speak, when, they, when it died and they left it dead. So when that occurs, we have to remember, 85 to 90 percent of the population, or working, workforce rather, depending upon how we count, is employed. But they are holding back at a certain point, they won't be able to hold back, and they will say, look, I've got to go out and buy that dishwasher, dryer, car, whatever. And that will start releasing the pent-up demand that occurs when people don't spend, even if they are handed money. And when that occurs, we will start to see a turnaround. But I don't think we'll see a return to robust growth.
2: The second uh, fatal factor you talk about that caused the problem is the housing bubble, uh, which where housing was kind of unrealistically pushed up. Uh, why are we not getting that back now when interest rates literally are lower now than they were during the last housing bubble? The Fed funds at zero, mortgage rates are at 4.5%, the lowest in 50 years. Why is that not creating a new bubble uh, when rates are even lower now than they were during the last bubble?
3: Well, I think two things. One is that uh, a lot of wealth has been destroyed, and there just isn't that much money out there now uh the housing prices i believe uh i just read are 18 of uh, march to march march 08 to march 09 are off uh, are down 18%. So there's not and that's the second thing. There's not this expectation of continued rising prices. Much of a bubble uh, as you know is psychological. That that bubble mentality that prices are going to rise indefinitely just isn't out there now. That psychology just doesn't exist now. So between the reality of the, uh, the the wealth that's been lost in the stock market and because of uh, the bursting of the bubble, uh, as well as the uh, expectations that people have psychologically, just, just won't support uh, bubble, bubble-esque spending at this point on real estate.
2: You say factor uh, fatal factor number three was that new mortgages and bad credit policy. Uh, now, that pretty much has disappeared, right? I mean, the subprime and the alt and the kind of option arms and all those things really don't exist in today's marketplace so is is that better we're not going to have that problem again in the future
3: well not until people forget how (laughs) damaging those uh, kind of lending practices were but you're absolutely right the uh... uh, practices did get us that did get us into trouble have been recognized as as simply bad credit credit policy and and very dangerous and risky and so those practices have, have gone, uh, uh, to, by the way, uh, for the moment. Uh, however, it, it seems that people can be very creative when it comes to new ways to uh, pump up the economy and pump up uh, the, the, the debt and, and to create a bubble. We did it during the tech stock boom of the 1990s, and we did it during the real estate boom of the OOs. Uh, but I think we're, we're kind of bubbled out for the moment.
2: <laughs> okay, very good. All right, we're going to take another break. Now, this is Jordan Goodman of The Money Answer Show, and my guest this hour is Tom Gorman, uh, whose new ebook is called The Complete Idiot's Guide to the Financial Crisis. And we'll be back after this.
0: Stocks, bonds, 401ks, investments, refinancing. We can help you. Call now toll-free, 866-472-5790, 866-472-5790. Voice America Business. Money, money, up-to-date business and financial news. Money, money, call now and get the financial information you need. 866-472-5790. 866-472-5790. Voice America Business.
1: You've been listening to The Money Answer Show with Jordan Goodman. If you have a question for Jordan or his guest, please call us now at 866-472-5790. That's 866-472-5790. Now back to Jordan.
2: Welcome back to The Money Answer Show. This is Jordan Goodman, your host, and my guest this hour is Tom Gorman, who's the author of the new Complete Idiot's Guide to the Financial Crisis, uh, published by Alpha Penguin. Uh, Welcome back to the show, Tom. Thank you, Jordan. Before we get back into it, just tell people one more time how they can uh, get this book uh, online and uh Amazon and so on.
3: Yes. The uh the, the simplest way to access this book is by going to www.idiotsguides.com. That is the Alpha Penguin website where you can find this book as a download to um MS Reader, Microsoft Reader. Or as a PDF file that can be read on any computer at all. Uh, you can also get it by going to Amazon.com, where it's available as a Kindle book, and any major online bookstore actually will have this book.
2: Okay, we were talking before about uh, the uh, what caused the financial crisis. Your fourth factor factor was mortgage backed securities and derivatives. Now, these haven't gone away, uh, they might be less liquid than they had in the past, but w- what is the future? of mortgage-backed securities and derivatives because it's such an important part of the uh, mortgage
3: and housing market that's a great question and that was a terrific asset class uh, wh- while it was working and before uh, the subprime failures and the, the, the contagion as, as, as we say that uh, that that created uh, securitizing loans brought so much more money available to, to lenders and to borrowers, uh, that it would actually be a shame, and I know this might sound sound heretical to some people, but it would actually be a shame if that asset class were to uh, go away, or rather, uh, it, it, it's not going away, obviously, but if, if the volume were, were to be you know, sort of fundamentally hobbled in a way. I think one key to this might be, a, uh... to the return of asset-backed securities and mortgage-backed securities might be a practice that they use in europe a lot called the covered bond a covered bond is very much like an asset-backed security in that it does bundle together and package up a lot of uh, individual consumer loans or mortgages however when the bank uh, uh... sells the loan it does not remove it from the balance sheet in other words With the way we were doing, and here in the States, mortgage-backed securities, that loan went off of the uh, bank's balance sheet, and uh, then the bank didn't worry about it anymore. It was in the hands of the investment banker, and they kind of did what they wanted with it in terms of reselling it, and it really severed the link, really, between lender, the bank, and the borrowers, the the mortgagees. However, a covered bond stays on the bank's balance sheet, so they have a real continuing vested interest in making sure that those are good loans that are backing that mortgage-backed security and that they uh, uh, remain in the loop, so to speak. So
2: they're not going to go away. They're just going to be a different form, is what you're saying.
3: I think that's true. I think that's true. Yeah.
2: You have a chapter called Debt Debacles and Financial Follies, and in there you talk about credit default swaps. explained. This is something people might have heard about but don't really understand. Maybe just briefly explain. Since this is this is for idiots. <laughs> I want you to <laughs> explain what credit default swaps and their significance in the economy and the financial crisis we're in today.
3: Yes, uh, cre- credit default swaps uh, or CDSs were a uh, or are a fairly uh, a sophisticated risk risk management tool. They're not really securities, and they are derivatives in the truest sense of the term. A uh, credit default swap is. Uh, a contract between two parties, and that's really uh, why they're also, you, you know, usually known as tools or instruments rather than securities, because they're not securities. There's no income stream underneath them, as there are, say, with a mortgage-backed security or with a uh, a bond issued by uh, an, any corporate entity. In this contract, one party called the protection seller agrees to pay all or part of the losses realized by another party, and that would be the protection buyer. If the issuer of the bond defaults, so essentially, if I have a bond, uh, there's risk associated with. In other words, I buy a bond. There's risk associated with that. It's default risk, and that's why these are called credit default swaps. I swap out some of that risk to the protection buyer, okay, who agrees to indemnify me in the event of default. Now, that sounds like a fairly sensible way to uh, sort of parse out and share risk. Unfortunately, what happened in the uh, recent debacle was that people started writing up these contracts and creating these contracts when they didn't even own the bond in question. So, in a sense, it became sort of a, a, a bet. Sort of, if 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 you and I were to just sit down and create one of these credit default swaps, even though you or I don't own the bond, Jordan, we would create one of these credit default swaps, um, and and in the sense that it occurred in the event that it occurred, neither of us would actually have the money to indemnify the other person. In other words, in the event of default, in other words, it became a bet, a pure bet, on whether or not a bond would uh, default.
2: Is this what caused AIG the big problems, because they were insuring a lot of these, and that when they went wrong,
3: that's why they needed so much money? Absolutely. And I think that's why the government has been so aggressive in uh, supporting AIG, even though it is uh, essentially an insurer and not a bank or an investment bank.
2: So what is the future of credit default swaps? Are they going to continue on or not?
3: I don't know. Uh, they may uh, uh, continue in some form or another because, again, uh, and, and this is very similar to the situation with the mortgage-backed securities, the the impulse that animated the creation of credit default swaps was not in itself uh, a, a lunacy. Or, or you know, in other words, it was a, a sensible impulse. Let's let's find ways to share risk. Uh, however, once something Moves from risk management tool into uh, uh, a pure speculative type of an instrument, then you have uh, a problem. And I think what we're going to see in general in the financial services industry is more of a return to uh, what I would call sane risk management, uh, fundamental uh, banking relationships, as opposed to uh, these transactions and bets and speculation. That sort of uh, you know it turned the financial industry into a, a casino so both uh, credit default swaps and the whole class of uh, asset-backed securities i think will will be with us but they'll be used in a much more conservative and, and uh, business-like manner
2: in the minute or so we have left your final chapter is called the big boom and bailouts and the road ahead i guess the bottom line is is all this going to work we're doing all these stimulus programs we're having very easy monetary policy Is this going to pull us out of the swoop and and we'll be back to the good old days again?
3: I think that it will work in the sense that it will help ease the pain. Uh, Congress uh, did, did, did... Sensible things in terms of uh, in increasing the uh, unemployment benefits, extending unemployment benefits. The whole TARP program, Troubled Asset Relief Program, has been mismanaged uh, because it wasn't the money really wasn't used to remove the toxic assets from the banks' balance sheet. However, just uh, stepping up with that money and buying the preferred shares in the banks that the that the uh, Treasury did last autumn helped to uh, bolster confidence in the banking system. But uh, again, I don't see these as really stimulating us out of of this slump, because uh, credit isn't going to do it, and fiscal policy, given the deficits that we have, uh, is is something that that still scares people. So I think we're going to have to wait until the cycle more or less plays itself out, pent-up demand uh, comes back on stream uh, and creates employment, restores some portion of income, and uh, we get rolling again.
2: Very good. Well, it's been fascinating. Uh, My guest this hour has been Tom Gorman. Uh, his new ebook is called The Complete Idiot's Guide to the Financial Crisis. Lots we didn't get to the, during this hour, but it's really a good guide to kind of understand what happened in the financial crisis and what you can do to make your personal finances better uh, going forward. So thanks so much for being on the show, Tom. Thank you, Jordan. I've really enjoyed it. Thank you, and we'll be back again next week.
1: Thank you for joining Jordan Goodman and the Money Answer Show. If you have a question for Jordan, please visit his website at www.moneyanswers.com. And be sure to tune in every Monday at 12 p.m. Pacific Standard Time right here on Voice America Business. See you next week.